Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. And so as we study the book of Ecclesiastes, um, it of course is written by King Solomon, who was the son of David. And when I think of Solomon, um, just love first mention, kind of like if you were to ask me, you know, what's the first thing that comes to mind uh, when, when you hear the name Solomon, um, there's really three words and they all start with W. Uh, one is wisdom, because that's kind of what he's known for at the beginning of his uh, um, life and, and the early years of his ministry, he asked God for wisdom and God granted him the request of his life and he was uh, the wisest that ever lived and that's what he certainly is known for. Uh, The second thing that I think of is wealth because with that wisdom uh, it afforded him an amazing opportunity uh, to rise and so he did and he was the richest and the wealthiest of all that ever lived and probably all that ever have since. I don't know if anyone's ever come close to the the level at least proportionately uh, to the economy of his day that he experienced and then of course the third W would be women because how anyone uh, can manage a thousand wives uh, all together and, 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 and keep track of all of that, that's just amazing. It's one of those things that you remember about someone. You know, like, yeah, they had a thousand wives, you know. But uh, the thing that we're the most grateful for when we think of Solomon, and, and certainly as we study the things that are recorded in Scripture, is his wisdom. Because he has uh, laid it down in such a way that we can absorb it and the Spirit of God can ignite it and illuminate it and then we can live in it and we can enjoy the benefits of having the wisdom of Solomon uh, in our own lives. So certainly his wisdom came from God, uh, so that's the source and we have the same God and so God gives that to us. There's a, a proverb, Proverbs chapter 13 verse 20, that says that he that walks with wise men shall be wise. He that walks with wise men shall be wise. And so tonight, as we get into kind of these middle chapters of Ecclesiastes, we kind of walk with Solomon a little bit, and he gives us some of his wisdom. And so tonight, what we're going to see as we move through these two chapters, and we won't be reading every verse, uh, and I'll explain why as we go, but what we have tonight in our study is essentially four eyes uh, and it's, you know, um, eyes denoting vision, um, but we're going to have the letter eyes as we go through the text uh, that will bring to us clearer vision for life in this world or life under the sun. And so Solomon's just going to share with us things that are helpful to us, and then the Spirit of God makes them alive to us, uh, and they help us in our, our walk. And so the four eyes that we're going to look at in the, these two chapters are, first of all, the importance of interpretation. And then second of all, the pathway to influence. And then third, the greatest injustice. And then finally, a word of instruction uh, as we finish out the end of chapter 9. And so we begin tonight in verse 1 of chapter 8, and we begin with the importance of interpretation. And so notice what Solomon says here. He says, who is as the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a thing? For a man's wisdom makes his face to shine, and the boldness of his face shall be changed. And so he asks this question as he says, who knows the interpretation of a thing? And then he equates interpretation with wisdom. And then he says that that wisdom is going to change the brightness of someone's countenance, and it's going to cause them to walk or live in a sense of boldness. 
And so if we want to live and walk in a sense of boldness and brightness, then part of that is the ability to interpret. And so interpret what? When he says the interpretation of a thing, he kind of leaves it open-ended. And so one definition of wisdom is the ability to interpret all components of a situation and then to determine the best course of action accordingly. And so interpretation of circumstances or factors in a a given thing is what's going to help us to clearly see and then know how it is that we should respond and how we should uh, live inside of it. And so it's one thing to observe a set of circumstances, but it's a whole different set uh, of things to interpret it. It's easy for me to observe that my wife is not happy, but it's a whole nother thing to interpret her unhappiness, and get underneath it and figure it out what's going on uh, in the whole thing. Sometimes it's easy to observe the fact that I have a short fuse on a given day or, or, or maybe in a, a certain season of my life. You know, I find that I, I'm a little more quick-tempered. I can observe that, but the interpretation of it or the reason why is something altogether different and addressing the issue depends upon me interpreting what's going on more than just observing it. It's easy for us to observe, but if we want to be wise, then we have to interpret. I came upon this, actually, uh, somebody handed this to me. It's something that I'd heard before, um, kind of on this idea of interpreting. But uh, I won't read you the whole thing because it's a little bit lengthy. But uh, essentially, this woman from a Baptist church wanted to organize a camping trip for her, her, her study group. And so she wrote a letter to uh, a campground, and she wanted to make sure there was proper um, bathroom facilities. But she didn't want to use the word toilet, and she didn't really want to use the word uh, bathroom. you know. And so she was kind of trying to figure out how to ask the question. And so she ended up using the words BC, uh, which was an abbreviation of the old-fashioned bathroom commode. It was kind of like the way they used to say it back in the day. And so she writes this letter asking if they have a BC in the campground and to describe those facilities. And so uh, basically the, um, the, the, uh, the, the people that ran the campground couldn't figure out what BC stood for And so they asked a whole bunch of people, and someone said, well, if this letter is written on Baptist church letterhead, BC probably stands for Baptist church. And so she's asking if there's a Baptist church in the campground. And so the guy said, oh, that makes sense. So he wrote this reply. He said, dear madam, the BC is located nine miles from the campground (laughs) in a beautiful grove of trees. I admit it is quite a distance if you're in the habit of going regularly. No doubt you will be pleased to know that it will seat 350 people at one time, and it is open on Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday of each week. Some folks like to take their lunch and make the day of it. The acoustics are very good, so everyone can hear, even the quietest passages. It may interest you to know that my daughter met her husband there. We are also having a fundraiser to purchase new seats, as the old ones have holes in them. Unfortunately, my wife is ill and has not been able to attend regularly. It's been a good six months since she last went. It pains her very much not to be able to go more often. As we get older, it seems to be more of an effort, especially in cold weather. Perhaps I could accompany you the first time you go, sit with you, and introduce you to all the folks who will be there. I look forward to your visit. We offer a very friendly campground, you know. And I just thought how fitting, you know, the importance of proper interpretation 
to help us to know how to respond uh, in the right way to any kind of a given situation. And so we go through things in our life, and and on any given day, at any given time, um, we're facing things constantly that that we need an interpretation of, and and a lot of times it's things that we wouldn't necessarily uh, even expect. Well, the good news is that the Bible tells us clearly that interpretations come from God. In Genesis chapter 40, verse 8, it's in the ministry of Joseph when he was told the dreams of the two prisoners that were there with him, and they, they didn't know the interpretation of their dream, that Joseph uh, said to them, do not interpretations come from God. And he knew, he knew right well where to look when he needed an interpretation. And so for you and I, when we need to know how to interpret something that's going on in our life, we have a source outside of the wisdom of this world and the resources of this world to help us to interpret. And so for me, I know that at any given time, uh, uh, sometimes I'm wrestling with desires that I have in my life. And, and, and so I can observe what those desires are. I know what I want, but sometimes I need help interpreting those desires. And why do I want this thing that I want? And sometimes if I really let God speak to me, what he reveals is that the thing that I really want or the root of that desire, the interpretation of it is much different than what it appears to be on the surface. And so I think of like the woman at the well, right? And she came to Jesus, or Jesus came to her, and he engages her in this conversation. And she's there because she needs water, and she's looking for satisfaction. And in the course of their interaction, Jesus says to this woman, he says that whoever drinks this water is going to thirst again. But if you drink the water that I provide, he said that you'll never thirst again. And she said, Lord, evermore give me this water. And then he basically lets her know that he's the water. And so she had a desire. She thought that she wanted something, but really what she really needed was a satisfaction that was deeper than what the something was that she was seeking satisfaction in. And Jesus ended up being the ultimate answer to that. And so that happens to us all the time, that we desire something. You know, things uh, happen in our life that we really think that we want, and, and it turns out as we come to the Lord that like he shows us that there's something greater. There's more, more to it than that. Lord, I really want more things. Or Lord, I really want more money. And what he shows us as he interprets those desires is that he shows us that we're trying to fill a void of value by adding outward value in what we possess and what we have. Wherein the real issue is that we need to know the value that we already possess in belonging to him and the value that he places on our lives. And he's the one that satisfies that great desire. But I need sometimes help in interpreting those desires. I need to know why I'm having them. Sometimes I need help interpreting my reactions, why I react in a certain way. Because sometimes I don't understand why I do. We have this washing machine problem in our house. And you probably have this problem too, is that it shakes the entire house when it's in a spin cycle. But that's not really the problem. The problem is that we don't really have a place to put our detergent. And so we have these BJ-sized detergent things that last about a day. <clears throat> and we put them right on top of the washer. And when thing, there's an uneven load or there's too much shaking, then sure enough, you know what happens is that that BJ-sized bulk container of high-efficiency fluid becomes a water balloon on my laundry room floor. And it has happened three times, you know. And, my, and that's kind of not in a good place. It's not like the basement where you just mop it up. There's carpet there and the whole thing. You know, it's a big mess. And it happened for the third time, and I got angry, you know. And, and I was frustrated because I had said, you know, please don't keep the, the detergent on the washing machine. And so I was angry because it was on the washing machine and the thing exploded. 
But I, I'm not quick to anger. That's kind of like my last emotion. And so whenever anger comes out of me, I always like check myself and ask. And, and so I needed God to interpret my anger. Why am I angry? And what, what I realized as I let God interpret my reaction to that issue is that he showed me that it wasn't anger that I was wrestling with. It really was embarrassment. And the embarrassment was that whose responsibility is it to provide a shelf for the detergent to sit on so that we don't have to put it on the washing machine. And I've had three years to do it, and I haven't done it. And so I was angry, and I was projecting my reaction upon someone else and their fault, but really the fault was my own. But I needed God to interpret that to me so that I didn't make a mess of relationships in my home. And so interpretation is paramount. It's very important. I need God to help me to interpret my emotions and my ambitions and my motives, why I do what I do. And, and the amazing thing is that we have a God that not only can do that, but that he's willing to do that. And so the result of it, when I allow God to interpret the things in my life, and now I know the full picture and the full story of why things are going on and I can interpret it, Solomon says that that's going to cause there to be a brightness in my countenance and a boldness in my life. That it's going to help me to see clearly what's going on in me and around me, and it's going to build up in me a confidence that doesn't come from myself, but comes from him, and there's going to be a clarity about my life. And so the importance of interpretation, Solomon says, that it leads to wisdom, which will then lead to brightness and boldness. And I think all of us want that. We want to feel a sense of confidence that we're where we're supposed to be, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, but it doesn't come from within us, it comes from God. Well, he's within us if he's in you. And so he's the one that fills us. It's the importance of interpretation. We're not in darkness because we have the light of the world living inside of us. And so God gives us that. He goes on in verses 2 through 7, and he talks to us about the pathway to influence. And so if you'll look with me at verse 2, uh, what Solomon says there. He says, I counsel you to keep the king's commandment, and that in regard to the oath of God. Now, Solomon is the king. All right, so when he talks about keeping the king's commandment, he's talking about obey the orders that are issued from your leader. And then he connects that to a reason. The reason why you should obey the orders that are given from your leader is because it has something to do with the oath of God. Now, what's the oath of God? The oath of God is what God has sworn or what God has promised. And so God has given promises God has given his word, and part of his word coming to pass in a person's life is somehow directly related to their ability or obedience to the command of their leaders. Notice with your eyes, if you just skip over to verse 6 for a minute, and we will read the, the interim verses, but uh, notice what he says there. He says, because, and that's another reason word, if we want to understand where he's going with this, he says, to every purpose, there is time and judgment. Judgment is understanding, it's wisdom, it's discretion, discernment. Therefore, the misery of man is great upon him. In other words, what, what he's saying there is he's saying, listen, the purpose that God has for your life, in your life, that's connected to the promise that he's going to bring it to pass, requires both time and discernment, wisdom, and judgment. So in other words, there's a process to seeing the purpose that God has for you brought forth and brought out of your life. And a part of that process, he says, 
obey the king's command. He says, I counsel you to keep the king's commandment. Now, this is a very interesting thing that he says, and I, I love this passage of scripture because it helps me very greatly. Um, one, of, one of the great drives that's in every single one of us is that we want to make a difference with our life. I don't think there's any one of us that just wants to, to kind of sail through under the radar and do nothing of value with the time that we have on earth and the resources and opportunity. All of us want to do something that's meaningful and lasting. A lot of times when we're miserable, it's because we feel like we're not doing anything that's lasting or purposeful. So we all want to do that. But one of the great hindrances that keeps us from that is oftentimes is that we feel that we lack the authority to be able to, uh, to leverage our influence. We, we don't have the power to make an influence. It's funny, if you actually Google these days, what is the top career choice of people that are coming of age and that are desiring to uh, find a way in this world, the number one choice right now, can anybody guess what it is, what people want to do? What is it, Hunter? No, it's not a doctor or lawyer. That was a couple generations ago. We're way past that. Anybody else want to try? No, it's, what did you say? Media influencer? You're very close. It's life coach. <laughs> it's life coach. But the problem is these people are like 14, and they've done nothing, and they think that they're going to be a life coach in the whole thing, <laughs> and you can't go, really go anywhere because how do you coach someone through something that you have no idea what you're talking about? Well, I watched someone else life coach their way through this on Instagram, and so now I'm qualified to help you in the whole thing. Uh, in the whole thing. That's what people really want to do. But they're not getting any traction because they don't have any of the influence that it takes in order to do it. Now, every one of us in our life have this issue that we face, and that is that we don't have as much power as we think we might need in order to influence in a way that is impactful. Now, Solomon, who was the king, had most of humanity under him and only a very small margin of things above him. One is God and two is public opinion. Otherwise, he was pretty much the top dog. But what Solomon gives to us here in these next couple of verses, which is very useful to every one of us, are some principles and keys to what I'm going to call leading up. In other words, having influence when maybe you're not in charge. And that's true for every one of us in some area of our life. You might be in a job right now where you're not the boss. You might be a part of an organization where you're not a decision maker or a leader. You might be in a marriage where you're not the one who wears the pants. You know, and that, that, that's genderless. That, that shouldn't be offensive to you. It could go both ways, you know. But you might be in a situation somewhere in your life. You might even be a child and you're under the authority of your parents and you feel like you're in a place where you don't have the power or the leverage of influence. Well, what Solomon gives to us here are seven quick things that we can sow into our mind that will help us to be able to lead even if we're not in charge. Because it's possible to lead even if you're not in charge. And so what are the things? First of all, he says, well, keep the king's commandment. That's number one. What does that mean? It means don't be a rule breaker. If you want to have influence and leverage your opportunity to make impactful change, don't be a rule breaker. And the reason is because rule breakers are hazards and liabilities in their places of influence, and then they lose the trust of those that are over them, and ultimately they do more harm than good. Don't be a rule breaker if you want to have influence. The second thing that he tells them is in verse 3. Notice what he says. He says, be not hasty to go out of his sight, out of the king's sight. And the idea behind going out of the king's sight is going behind the king's back. 
In other words, one way that you're not going to be successful in leveraging influence in a given situation is to go behind the back of the people that are leading you, whether it's your parents or your spouse or your boss or whoever it is that's over you, if you go behind their back and try to get things done in the shadows and in secret, that's going to ultimately backfire on you. What it's going to do in any given situation is it's going to fragment the culture of unity that needs to exist for anything to be successful. If a family is going to be successful, if an organization or business is going to be successful, if a church or a ministry is going to be successful, there needs to be a culture of unity and commonality in the vision and the direction that things are supposed to be going. And when things are done behind the back and it's kind of a power grab type of thing, then it tears that apart. And so you don't want to fragment the culture. Now, and the other thing is that when you're caught, and you probably will be at some point, then you're going to lose trust and uh, suspicion will be raised against you. The third thing that he says, it's also there in verse 3, he says, stand not in an evil thing. Now, the evil thing would be like a conspiracy. You know, we're going to overthrow the king. We're going to revolt. There's going to be a coup. We're going to just take care of this. We're going to work the angles and get him out. He says, don't do that. The next thing he says in verse uh, 3, which gives us a clue now um, in the positive direction. We've heard what not to do. Now what shall we do? Notice what he says at the end of the verse. He says, for he, that is the king, doeth whatsoever pleases him. In other words, the person with the power is going to do what they want. And we all understand that. You know, the person who sits in the big chair and calls the shots, that person is going to do what they want. Now, that's a clue for you and I as to how we can lead from behind. Because if we know that the leader is going to do what's in the best interest of the leader, then if we get in the head of the leader and think about what's in the best interest of that leader, then we have the opportunity to influence that leader's decision-making. So what is a leader most concerned about in any context of life? A leader is concerned, first of all, about the success of whatever it is that the leader is leading. And so if you understand that, then that will help you. The other thing that the leader, every leader, is always interested in is making their own life easier, right? Because if you've ever been a leader or if you are a leader in any capacity, you know that it's not easy to lead. There's a lot more going on that you're in charge of and responsible for than the people that are following you are aware of or understand. And so if a leader wants the success of what they're leading and they want their life to be easier and I as a follower have ideas or can use my influence in a way that accomplishes those two goals, then that makes it easy for me to lead from behind. Now, I I can say this with a little bit of authority because I'm not the lead pastor here of the church. I'm an assistant pastor. And so I'm actually doing that. I have a leadership role, but I'm not in charge. And what I have learned in this role that I'm in is that as I help Bobby, because he's set upon the success and the health of this church body is that as I have ideas or vision in myself, that when those ideas that I have are in line with his goal of making this church healthy and strong and safe and successful, then I know that I'm going to have a good outcome when I approach him with ideas. There's going to be leverage in communicating my ideas because I'm making his life easier. I'm making life better for him. And so the leader's going to do what they want, and so I want to be on board uh, with that. And I've found in my years here that any time that I've made a suggestion or I've had an idea or wanted to do something that makes sense for the church body and is a benefit to the people, that makes his life easier in some way, I've never been squashed or put down. I've never been told no for the sake of no. 
You know, and so it's learning how to lead from behind by seeing through the leader's eyes. And it applies in every situation uh, of life, even in a family. Um, the next thing that he says is in verse 4, and that is the principle is that if you can't use your arm, then use your head. He says this in verse 4. He says, for where the word of a king is, there is power. And who can say unto the king, what doest thou? In other words, the king, the leader, is the one who has the power and you do not. Where the word of the king is, there is power. So in other words, you have this desire to leverage benefit to whatever it is that you're in, but you don't have the power. You don't have the arm to be able to make decisions. So don't use your arm, use your head. Figure out how you can take the circumstance that you're in and leverage it for the good of the future. The next thing he says is in verse 5, and this is important too, is that timing is everything. Notice. He says, because to every purpose there is time and judgment or discretion, therefore misery of man is great upon him, for he knows not that which shall be, for who can tell him when it shall be? Listen, here's a clue. Another thing that I have learned, I mean, we're all under some form of leadership at various times of our life. If you want to influence the people that are leading you, pay very close attention to time and be discretionate about the rhythms of their life when you're approaching, when you're speaking, take care to respect the time of leaders when you're presenting uh, ideas and things. Anyways, just a little side Solomon gives to us. He's the king. He's saying, listen, I want to give you good counsel. This is the way that you can have influence in a situation when you're not in charge. And I know that I want to feel like I'm making a difference in my life, that I'm not just a number or fulfilling a role. I want to feel like God has given me something to contribute to what I'm doing, and I want to feel meaning in it. And so there's a challenge and an opportunity that I have to lead from behind. And that's something that every one of us has. And there's an art to it. And God's the one that gives us the ability. Now, you might be here tonight, and you might be in a situation, maybe in a job, where you are completely shut down, where you, you have absolutely no ability to do this whatsoever, and it's killing you inside. That may be one of two things that God might be doing. Is one, he might have something else for you somewhere else where you can be more fully used or you feel more fitting to it, or God wants to stretch your wisdom and make, it, make you creative, give you ways to be able to do this and to be able to employ uh, his his spirit in your life to make a difference wherever you are. Now, if you're in a marriage, God isn't leading you to go find another place, all right? If you're in a marriage and you feel like that, then you're in a Red Sea situation where God is going to do that. He's going to open up the understanding in some way, and he's going to teach you how to lead. I can tell you that the greatest leader in my house is my wife, hands down. She is the leader of my home. Now, she does not sit in the big chair in my home, and she doesn't make the final the final decision on things. I do that and I covet that role that I've been given from God. But she is the great leader in my household because she knows how to lead up in a most excellent way because she's so wise in the way that she, she approaches, the way that she uh, rat reasons with me about the, the things that she's asking for and she's thought it through. She knows my rhythm. She knows don't ask me questions after dinner. I can't think after dinner, you know, that's not my time, you know. So it's, so it's such an art, you know, and God gives it. And Solomon shares that with us uh, here. And so um, the importance of influence he gives to us. The third thing, and we're not going to read these verses. It goes from verse 8 all the way through chapter 9, verse 6. <laughs> and what we have in these verses is what we'll call the greatest injustice. 
And it has to do with the concept of human death. We'll read just one verse, verse 8. It says, There is no man that has power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit, neither has he power in the day of death, and there is no discharge in that war, neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. In other words, there is nothing that you can do to keep yourself alive once you've reached the end of your course. In the New Testament, it says that it is appointed once for a man to die, and after this, the judgment. In other words, God already knows the number of days that each of us has. He already knows the cause of death, the time of death, and all the circumstances that surround it, and there's no discharge in that war. You can't change it. You can't fix it. You can't help it. And so what Solomon does over the next half a chapter and then the first half of chapter 9 is he tries to figure this out. And you can read it on your own, but I'm going to tell you the big thought in these verses is that death is unfair, death is unannounced, it is unbiased in the decisions that it makes, it is unexplained, and at least as far as earth is concerned, it is final. And so it's kind of a dismal picture that he paints concerning all of this. Uh, You know, kind of an illustration that kind of um, helps us kind of understand the way death works. It would be kind of like if you were in a classroom and you went in on the first day of, say, like a college class and the professor got up and he stood in front of the whole class and no one's done anything yet. You haven't even found out his name. And he just said, hey, this is the, the middle line of the classroom and everyone on my right gets an A, And everyone on my left gets an F. And then he gets up and he just walks out of the classroom. And you would say, that is the most ridiculous policy I have ever heard ever. Because it is so unjust. It is so irrational. I mean, why should someone who has done no work and that has no deserving of having an A, why should they get an A? And why should everyone who has done nothing, they haven't even been able to prove themselves, they automatically get an F? And Solomon says it's about that fair and logical when we start to think about death and the things that go around death. Because someone who is righteous and good and productive and, and, and seeks God and does the right thing, death hits them in, in horrible circumstances and at the worst possible time. And then there's someone who is wicked and, and ugly and their whole life is just filled with bitter wretchedness and that person lives a full lifespan in riches and glory and never has any problems and then they just die quietly and peacefully. And the conclusion that he comes to is he says, in all of my wisdom, in everything that I've seen and experienced, I cannot figure this out. And when all you're using is earthly measurements to try to make sense of it, you can never figure it out. And it will never seem fair and it will never seem right. But if you open the borders of your search a little bit further and you look at it from God's perspective, there are two things that come to light and that make sense because of death and the way that it is what it is. Number one is this, is that if death will indiscriminately torture someone who is righteous someone who deserves an A, so to speak, then that must mean that everyone automatically deserves an F. And that's true. When you look at the concept through the light of the entire scripture, what we realize is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I just started over with uh, my two youngest boys, the Bible, and we're, we're talking through the early portion of Genesis and original sin and Adam and Eve. And what did God say? He said that in the day that you eat from this tree, you shall surely what? Die. That was the promise. But do you know what God did? 
God took an innocent lamb and he killed a lamb that had done nothing wrong in place of killing Adam that day. Thus God fulfilled his justice, but he spared Adam and gave him mercy. Whose death was that that the lamb endured? It was Adam's death. And John the Baptist said of Jesus Christ that he is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And God took Christ in your place and he slayed his son who was righteous. And he let the brutality of death and the finality of it and the unfairness of it be placed upon him so that we could live eternally. But in our fallen state, which we are all in right now, we all deserve an F because we've all sinned and come short of his glory. And when we realize that, it takes away some of the sting of the unfairness of the circumstances that surround it sometimes. The other thing that death helps us to understand, or, or, or you know, the whole uh, concept of deserving it, is that when we realize the, the unfairness of death, we realize that the purpose of, of our lives is not for this world. It's not. It's for somewhere else. And so uh, we find that uh, as we look over the sun. So we're going to pick up in verse 7 of chapter 9, and we'll close with a word of instruction that Solomon gives to us. He says, go your way. In light of all of this, the depressiveness of death, and don't let it depress you tonight, because there's more for the believer because of Jesus Christ. He says, because of this, go your way, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God now accepts your works. And let your garments be always white, and let your head lack no ointment. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of your vanity, which he has given you under the sun, all the days of your vanity. For that is thy portion in this life and in thy labor, which you take under the sun. And whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave where you are going. And so basically what he says to us here is, listen, in light of what we have in this world and that everything that we enjoy is bonus because we deserve enough, he says, enjoy your portion. He says, put on white garments. It means live with integrity, be the same person all the time. Let your head be anointed with oil. Let there be clarity in your thinking and in your thought life. He says, give your all to whatever it is that you do because this is the opportunity that we have to make something of our lives and what we've been given in this world. So whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. One of my favorite passages I love sharing with my kids, um, there, was a, there was a man in, in Solomon's kingdom when Solomon was the king. His name was Jeroboam. And he ended up being a real jerk. He was a real bad guy, and he caused a lot of problems. But he was extremely industrious, and he was diligent in, in whatever it was that was given to him. And so at one point, he was working a very low-level job. And he didn't know that Solomon was watching him. So the king was watching, and he didn't even know it, and he was just working really hard. And it says that Solomon saw that he was industrious. And so Solomon called him in, and he made him the captain over the entire tribe of Joseph. So basically two tribes in Israel, Ephraim and Manasseh, this guy became the leader of it because he was working hard in a menial job and he didn't know he was being observed. And I, I love sharing that with my kids to just say, listen, whatever it is that you're doing right now, whatever your job is, whatever your task or your place in life, whether you're a student or whether you just have to clean your room or whether you're, you're working a job that you think this is horrible, why am I even doing this? Do it diligently because God is always watching. And what Solomon is saying is whatever you have right now, make the most of it. Find purpose in it. Make it real. Make it living. And something good will come of it. 
And so he says all of this. And then in verse 11, <laughs> he says, I returned and I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. In other words, <laughs> listen, life ain't fair. Because sometimes the swiftest, the smartest, the brightest, the most opportune, sometimes things just don't work out. But there's hope. Why? Because though life is unfair, it is possible to get what is universally available. Listen, God is with us, and God has something for us in spite of the unfairness of life, and there is a universal something that comes directly from God that is available to you, and he closes out the passage by telling us to get it, find it. He says in verse 12, For man also knows not his time. As the fishes that are taken in an evil net and as the birds that are caught in the snare, so are the sons of men snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. This wisdom have I seen also under the sun, and it seemed great to me, that there was a little city and a few men within it, and there came a great king against it and besieged it and built great bulwarks against it. And so he begins telling this parable. We don't know if it actually happened or if he's just being figurative and teaching. But apparently there was a city that was besieged by an enemy army. And it says that there was found in it a poor, wise man. So this man didn't, wasn't endowed with riches. And he didn't have opportunity, but he did have wisdom. He had something on the inside that you can't learn in a book and that you can't buy. And it says that he, by his wisdom, delivered the city, yet no man remembered that same poor man. Then said I, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. He said, listen, at the end of the day, if you can have wisdom, even in the absence of every other thing, money, authority, influence, power, strength, if you can have wisdom, then that wisdom is going to take you further than any of those other things will. But don't get too excited because you're still going to be forgotten. The words of the wise men are heard in quiet more than the cry of him that rules among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Now, there actually is a, a passage in the Bible where this exact scene that Solomon describes is played out. It isn't a poor wise man, but actually it's a, 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 a woman in, in the story who is extremely wise. And it happened uh, sometime during the reign of David, that there was this man named Sheba, and he launched a rebellion against King David, and the armies of David, led by Joab, were sent out to squash this rebellion and to find this man Sheba, who was causing all these problems. Well, he took refuge in this little city called Abel Bethmeaka, which was just this little town, and it was actually like a suburb of a little town, but it was just this little community that was there, and he was hiding inside. And so Joab took his army, and he besieges the city for the sake of getting this one man. And, and so they're getting ready, and they're building the bulwarks, and they're setting up the catapults, and they're lighting the big stones on fire, and they're about to just take out this entire city because of the sake of one man. And so finally, this wise woman calls for Joab, and she says, can we just have a conversation before you kill everyone in this city? And he says, well, all right, what do I have to lose? And so Joab goes, and he, he has a conversation with the woman, and he says, look, he goes, we're a peaceable people. We're a community in Israel. We honor the king. What is it that you want with us? Why are you here? And the guy explains the thing, and she says, so basically, if we, if we produce the head of Sheba, 
then you'll leave us alone. And he said, yeah, pretty much. And she says, give me a few minutes. And so she goes back into the city. She confers with, you know, the, the people of the town. And they hear a little bit of commotion. The next thing you know, Sheba's head comes flying over the wall, rolls down at the feet of, of Joab, and everybody goes home. And it's a great day, you know. And what's the whole idea, you know, behind what Solomon is saying here and what happened there in Abel Beth Maaka? Here it is. Listen. Listen, don't destroy a city for the sake of one man. In other words, what Solomon is saying as he talks to us about getting wisdom is he's saying, listen, take a chill pill and figure out what's going on universally. Just in every area of your life, don't make rash decisions. Just figure out what's going on. Figure out what is really at stake and what the issues really are in a given thing. And you'll know how to move forward in the most efficient way and in a way where you're not just making a mess everywhere you go. Now, where does that come from? It comes from wisdom. It's where we began tonight. When Solomon talked about the wisdom that comes from the interpretation of a thing. Wisdom comes from God. Now, listen. Solomon had great wisdom, but at this portion of his life, he was kind of stupid because he was looking for answers to things without employing the wisdom that comes from above. He was looking at it purely from an earthly vantage point. You know, maybe you've thought, like in these last couple studies, as we've gone through last week, chapter 7, this week, chapters 8 and 9, you say, haven't we kind of veered off course a little bit? I mean, the whole purpose of Ecclesiastes, isn't it to discover what is the purpose of life? We kind of left that theme a long time ago, it seems like. You know, after we figured out it wasn't money and it wasn't pleasure and partying, you know, now we're just talking about, like, you know, values and wisdom and interpretation. And like, where is, where is all of that? Listen, here's, here's the point. Here's what you've got to see is that any time you get locked into an earthly vantage point, you're going to lose sight of anything that you're trying to do. Solomon's lost right now in what he's trying to do. So what's the idea? The idea is to bring in Jesus Christ. Because when you bring in Jesus Christ, the Bible says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so as we allow him to interpret, as we allow him to empower, as we allow him to inspire, as we allow him to reveal and give us an understanding of what's going on around us, that's when we're going to have the wisdom to know how to live and move properly, and thus we can see. We're four eyes, right? We have clear vision because Jesus is the one that's helping us. Now, you take any bit of worldly wisdom, no matter how good it is, and you subtract Jesus from it, and it's foolish. It's not going to work. It might work for a minute, but it's not going to have any lasting eternity or eternal effect because it's foolish. Listen to what Paul says. I want to read you a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says this, speaking of the wisdom of God given to us in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He says, Unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brothers, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, 
But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world and the things which are despised has God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. Now you say, that's a big mouthful in the King's English to talk about a point that means what? It means, listen, that the wisdom of God is Jesus Christ. And when you have Christ in your life, you have everything available to you to be able to see clearly and know clearly, interpret clearly, and then act clearly on whatever God has given. And this is such a paramount point that Paul goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 4, that he says, when he was among them, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Here's the good news and why I take the time to go through that passage tonight. It's because it doesn't matter tonight what your status is in any other thing. It doesn't matter if you have money, if you have strength, if you have education. None of that matters. The question is, do you have Jesus? Because if you have Jesus, then you have the wisdom of God with you and available to you. And that's going to enable you to do whatever it is that God has given uh, to you for your life. Let's stand as we close. You might be here tonight and there's a lack of vision in your life. You feel like there's a loss of clarity or a lack of clarity. Maybe a situation that you need God to interpret for you. There's things going on in your mind, things going on in your heart, things going on around you, maybe in your family or in your home or in your workplace. Maybe there's desires or ambitions, motives, things happening inside and you need an interpretation. You need God, the Holy Spirit, to speak to you, to reveal to you what's going on. I want to pray for you tonight. You might be in a situation where you need God to lead you, help you to lead up. There might be something going on. Maybe you're afraid of death tonight. You're facing a situation you need to see beyond the borders of this world. Maybe you just need wisdom. You feel like, God, I need more wisdom. I've been relying too much upon me. I'm relying too much upon my own strength. And God, I need you to help me, for you to inspire me, for you to fill me. Tonight, I just want to pray for us. Pray for our church. Father, I, I ask you, Lord, that you would hear these things in the heart cry and the individual needs that each one of us have. The Lord, you would help us to navigate this life in the best way. Oh Lord, forgive us for the times and the places and the ways that we've relied upon ourselves. Forgive us for the times and ways that we've run with our impulses and we've neglected to wait upon you to show us what's really happening. We ask, Lord, that we would take these things that Solomon gave to us tonight, not as man's wisdom, but we pray for the light of Jesus Christ to make them living applicable to us. We thank you, Lord, for this great inheritance that we have to be called yours. We thank you for the gift that you give to us, Lord, to speak to us. You said, my sheep will hear my voice and I'll know them and they follow me. So I pray for each one of us here tonight. Pray for your people, Lord. And whatever the great need is, I pray that you would be the great need meter. Open our eyes. Let the eyes of our understanding be opened, enlightened, that we might know what you have for us. I just want to read you a short prayer that Paul prayed over the Ephesian church. He said that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory 
to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, and that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance is in the saints. And also, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he showed in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Father, I pray that you would make us these things and so much more. So help us, Lord, to get our eyes upon you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship the Lord. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so that you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave a review in iTunes or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.